Section 22 of The Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Shiel. Section 22. O wild providence, unfathomable madness of heaven, that I should write what I now write. I will not write it. The hissing of it, it is only a crazy dream, a tearing out of the hair by the roots to scatter upon the raving storms of Saturn. My hand will not write it. In God's name, during four nights after the burning I slept in a house, French as I saw by the books, etc., probably the ambassadors, for it has very large gardens and a beautiful view over the sea, situated on the rapid east declivity of Pera. It is one of the few large houses which, for my safety, I had left standing round the minaret whence I had watched, this minaret being at the top of the old Mussulman quarter on the heights of Taksim, between Pera proper and Foundoukli. At the bottom, both at the quay of Foundoukli and at that of Tofana, I had left under shelter two cakes for double safety, one a sultan's gift craft, with gold spur at the prow, and one a boat of those zaptiers that used to patrol the golden horn as water police. By one or other of these I meant to reach the Speranza, she being then safely anchored some distance up the Bosphorus coast. So, on the fifth morning, I set out for the Tofana Quay, but a light rain had fallen overnight, and this had re-excited the thin grey smoke resembling quenched steam, which, as from some reeking province of Abaddon, still trickled upward over many a square mile of blackened track, though of flame I could see no sign. I had not accordingly advanced far over every sort of debris when I found my eyes watering, my throat choked, and my way almost blocked by roughness, whereupon I said, I will turn back, cross the region of tombs and barren wastes behind Pera, descend the hill, then get the Zaptia boat at the Foundoukli Quay, and so reach the Speranza. Accordingly, I made my way out of the region of smoke, passed beyond the limits of smouldering ruin and tomb, and soon entered a rich woodland, somewhat scorched at first, but soon green and flourishing as the jungle. This cooled and soothed me, and being in no hurry to reach the ship, I was led on and on in a somewhat northwestern direction, I fancy. Somewhere hereabouts, I thought, was the place they called the Sweet Waters, and I went on with the vague notion of coming upon them, thinking to pass the day till afternoon in the forest. Here nature, in only twenty years, has returned to an exuberant savagery, and all was now the wildest vegetation, dark dells, rills wimpling through deep brown shade of sensitive mimosa, large pendulous fuchsia, palm, cypress, mulberry, jonquil, narcissus, daffodil, rhododendron, acacia, fig. Once I stumbled upon a cemetery of old gilt tombs, absolutely overgrown and lost, and thrice caught glimpses of little trellis yallies choked in boskage. With slow and listless foot I went, munching an almond or an olive, though I could swear that olives were not formerly indigenous to any soil so northern. Yet here they are now, pretty plentiful, though elementary, so that modifications, whose end I cannot see, are certainly proceeding in everything. 
some of the cypresses which I met that day being immense beyond anything I ever heard of. And the thought, I remember, was in my head, that if a twig or leaf should change into a bird or a fish with wings and fly before my eyes, what then should I do? And I would eye a branch suspiciously anon. After a long time I penetrated into a very sombre grove. The day outside the wood was brilliant and hot and very still, the leaves and flowers here all motionless. I seemed, as it were, to hear the vacant silence of the world, and my foot treading on a twig pronounced the report of pistols. I presently reached a glade in a thicket, about eight yards across, and had a scent of lime and orange, where the just sufficient twilight enabled me to see some old bones, three skulls, and the edge of a tam-tam peeping from a tuft of wild corn with cornflowers, and here and there some gold champak, and all but a profusion of musk-roses. I had stopped. Why, I do not recollect, perhaps thinking that if I was not getting to the sweet waters, I should seriously set about finding my way out. And as I stood looking about me, I remember that some cruising insect trawled near my ear its lonely drone. Suddenly, God knows, I started. I started. I imagined. I dreamed that I saw a pressure in a bed of moss and violets, recently made. And while I stood gloating upon that impossible thing, I imagined, I dreamed, the lunacy of it, that I heard a laugh, the laugh, my good God, of a human soul. Or it seemed half a laugh and half a sob, and it passed from me in one fleeting instant. Laughs and sobs and idiot hallucinations I had often heard before. Feet walking, sounds behind me. And even as I had heard them, I had known that they were nothing. But brief as was this impression, it was yet so thrillingly real that my poor heart received, as it were, the very shock of death, and I fell backward into a mass of moss, supported on the right palm, while the left pressed my working bosom, and there, toiling to catch my breath, I lay still, all my soul focused into my ears. But now I could hear no sound, save only the vast and audible hum of the silence of the universe. There was, however, the footprint. If my eye and ear should so conspire against me, that, I thought, was hard. Still I lay, still in that same pose, without a stir, sick and dry-mouthed, infirm and languishing, with dying breaths, but keen, keen, and malign. I would wait, I said to myself. I would be artful as snakes, though so woefully sick and invalid. I would make no sound. After some minutes I became conscious that my eyes were leering, leering in one fixed direction, and instantly the mere fact that I had a sense of direction proved to me that I must, in truth, have heard something. I strove, I managed, to raise myself, and as I stood upright, feebly swaying there, not the terrors of death alone were in my breast, but the authority of the monarch was on my brow. I moved, I found the strength. Slow step by slow step, with daintiest noiselessness, I moved to a thread of moss that from the glade passed into the thicket, and along its winding way I stepped, in the direction of the sound. Now my ears caught the purling noise of a brooklet, and following the moss path, I was led into a mass of bush only two or three feet higher than my head. Through this, prowling like a stealthy cat, I wheedled my painful way, emerged upon a strip of open long grass, 
and now was faced three yards before me by a wall of acacia trees prickly pear and piculas between which and a forest beyond i spied a gleam of running water on hands and knees i crept toward the acacia thicket entered it a little and leaning far forward peered and there at once ten yards to my right i saw singular to say my agitation instead of intensifying to the point of apoplexy and death now at the actual sight subsided to something very like calmness with malign and sullen eye askance i stood and steadily i watched her there she was on her knees her palms lightly touching the ground supporting her at the edge of the streamlet she knelt and she was looking with a species of startled shy astonishment at the reflection of her face in the limpid brown water and i with sullen eye askance regarded her a good ten minutes space i believe that her momentary laugh and sob which i had heard was the result of surprise at seeing her own image and i firmly believe from the expression of her face that this was the first time that she had seen it never i thought as i stood moodily gazing had i seen on the earth a creature so fair though analysing now at leisure i can quite conclude that there was nothing at all remarkable about her good looks her hair somewhat lighter than auburn and frizzy was a real garment to her nakedness covering her below the hips some strings of it falling too into the water her eyes a dark blue were wide in a most silly expression of bewilderment even as i eyed and eyed her she slowly rose and at once i saw in all her manner an air of unfamiliarity with the world as of one wholly at a loss what to do her pupils did not seem accustomed to light and i could swear that that was the first day in which she had seen a tree or a stream her age appeared to be eighteen or twenty i guessed that she was of circassian blood or at least origin her skin was whitey brown or old ivory white she stood up motionless at a loss she took a lock of her hair and drew it through her lips there was some look in her eyes which i could plainly see now somehow indicating wild hunger though the wood was full of food after letting go her hair she stood again feckless and imbecile with sideward hung head very pitiable to see i think now though no faintest pity touched me then it was clear that she did not at all know what to make of the look of things finally she sat on a moss bank reached and took a musk rose on her palm and looked hopelessly at it one minute after my first actual sight of her my extravagance of agitation i say died down to something like calm the earth was mine by old right i felt that and this creature a mere slave upon whom without heat or haste i might perform my will and for some time i stood coolly enough considering what that will should be i had at my girdle the little kangiar with silver handle encrusted with coral and curved blades six inches long damascened in gold and sharp as a razor the blackest and the basest of all the devils of the pit was whispering in my breast with calm persistence kill kill and eat why i should have killed her i do not know that question i now ask myself it must be true true that it is not good for man to be alone there was a religious sect in the past which called itself socialist and with these must have been the truth man being at his best and highest when most social 
and at his worst and lowest when isolated. For the earth gets hold of all isolation, and draws it, and makes it fierce, base, and materialistic, like sultans, aristocracies, and the like. But heaven is where two or three are gathered together. It may be so, I do not know, nor care. But I know that after twenty years of solitude, on a planet, the human soul is more enamoured of solitude than of life, shrinking like a tender nerve from the rough intrusion of another into the secret realm of self. And hence, perhaps, the bitterness with which solitary castes, Brahmins, patricians, aristocracies, always resisted any attempt to invade their slowly acquired domain of privileges. Also, it may be true, it may, it may, that after twenty years of solitary selfishness, a man becomes, without suspecting it, not at all noticing the slow stages, a real and true beast, a horrible, hideous beast, mad, prowling, like that king of Babylon, his nails like bird's claws, and his hair like eagle's feathers, with instincts all aflamed and fierce, delighting in darkness and crime for their own sake. I do not know, nor care, but I know that, as I drew the kangyar, the basest and the slyest of all the devils was whispering me, tongue-in-cheek, kill, kill, and be merry. With excruciating slowness, like a crawling glacier, tender as a nerve to the touching leaves, I moved, I stole, obliquely toward her, through the wall of bush, the knife behind my back. Once only there was a restraint, a check. I felt myself held back. I had to stop, for one of the ends of my divided beard had caught in a limb of prickly pear. I set to disentangling it, and it was, I believe, at the moment of succeeding that I first noticed the state of the sky, a strip of which I could see across the rivulet. A minute or so before it had been pretty clear, but now it was busy with hurrying clouds. It was a sinister muttering of thunder which had made me glance upward. When my eyes returned to the sitting figure, she was looking foolishly about the sky, with an expression which almost proved that she had never before heard the sound of thunder, or at least had no idea what it could bode. My fixed regard lost not one of her movements, while, inch by inch, not breathing, careful as the poise of a balance, I crawled. And suddenly, with a rush, I was out in the open, running her down. She leapt. Perhaps two, perhaps three paces she fled. Then, stock still, she stood, within some four yards of me, with panting nostrils, with inquiring face. I saw it all in one instant, and in one instant all was over. I had not checked the impetus of my run at her stoppage, and I was on the point of reaching her with uplifted knife, when I was suddenly checked and smitten by a stupendous violence. A flash of blinding light, attracted by the steel which I held, struck tingling through my frame, and at the same time the most passionate crash of thunder that ever shocked a poor human ear felled me to the ground. The kangya snatched from my hand fell near the girl's foot. I did not entirely lose consciousness, though surely the powers no longer hide themselves from me, and their close contact is too intolerably rough and vigorous for a poor mortal man. During, I should think, three or four minutes, I lay so astounded under that bullying cry of wrath that I could not move a finger. When at last I did sit up, the girl was standing near me, with a sort of smile, holding out to me the kangya in a pouring rain. I took it from her, and my doddering fingers dropped it into the stream. Poor, poor came the rain. 
raining as it can in this place, not long, but a deluge while it lasts, dripping in thick liquidity, like a profuse sweat, through the forest, I seeking to get back by the way I had come, flying but with difficulty and slowness, and a feeling in me that I was being tracked. And so it proved, for when I struck into more open space, nearly opposite the west walls, but now on the north side of the Golden Horn, where there is a flat grassy ground somewhere between the valley of Cassim and Charcoy, with horror I saw that protégé of heaven, or of someone, not ten yards behind, following me like a mechanical figure, it being now near three in the afternoon, and the rain drenching me through, and I tired and hungry, and from all the ruins of Constantinople not one whiff of smoke ascending. I trudged on wearily, till I came to the quay of Foundoucli, and the Zaptia boat, and there she was with me still, her hair nothing but a thin, drowned string down her back. Not only can she not speak to me in any language that I know, but she can speak in no language. It is my firm belief that she has never spoken. She never saw a boat or water or the world till now I could swear it. She came into the boat with me, and sat astern, clinging for dear life to the gunwale by her fingernails, and I paddled the eight hundred yards to the Speranza, and she came up to the deck after me. When she saw the open water, the boat, the yalis on the coast, and then the ship, astonishment was imprinted on her face, but she appears to know little fear. She smiled like a child, and on the ship touched this and that, as if each were a living thing. It was only here and there that one could see the ivory-brown colour of her skin. The rest was covered with dirt, like old bottles long lying in cellars. By the time we reached the Speranza, the rain had stopped. I went down to my cabin to change my clothes, and had to shut the door in her face to keep her out. When I opened it, she was there, and she followed me to the windlass, when I went to set the anchor-engine going. I intended, I suppose, to take her to Imbros, where she might live in one of the broken-down houses of the village. But when the anchor was not yet half up, I stopped the engine and let the chain run again. For I said, No, I will be alone. I am not a child. I knew that she was hungry by the look in her eyes, but I cared nothing for that. I was hungry too, and that was all I cared about. I would not let her be there with me another instant. I got down into the boat, and when she followed, I rowed her back all the way past Foundoucli and the Tofana Quay to where one turns into the Golden Horn by St. Sophia, around the mouth of the horn being a vast semicircle of charred wreckage carried out by the river currents. I went up the steps on the Galata side before one comes to where the barge bridge was. When she had followed me onto the embankment, I walked up one of those rising streets, very encumbered now with the stone debris and ashes, but still marked by some standing black wall fragments. It being now not far from night, but the air as clear and washed as the translucency of a great purple diamond, with the rain and the afterglow of the sun and all the west aflame. When I was about a hundred yards up in this old mixed quarter of Greeks, Turks, Jews, Italians, Albanians, a noise and cafeges and wine-bibbing, having turned two corners, I suddenly gathered my skirts, spun round, and, as fast as I could, was off at a heavy trot back to the quay. She was after me, but being taken by surprise, I suppose, was distance a little at first. 
However, by the time I could scurry myself down into the boat, she was so near that she only saved herself from the water by a balancing stoppage at the brink, as I pushed off. I then set out to get back to the ship, muttering, You can have turkey if you like, and I will keep the rest of the world. I rode seaward, my face toward her, but steadily averted, for I would not look her way to see what she was doing. However, as I turned the point of the quay where the open sea washes quite rough and loud, to go northward and disappear from her, I heard a babbling cry, the first sound which she had uttered. I did look then, and she was still quite near me, for the silly maniac had been running along the embankment, following me. "'Little fool!' I cried out across the water. "'What are you after now?' And, oh, my good God, shall I ever forget that strangeness, that wild strangeness of my own voice, addressing on this earth another human soul? There she stood, whimpering like an abandoned dog after me. I turned the boat, rowed, came to the first steps, landed, and struck her two stinging slaps, one on each cheek. While she cowered, surprised, no doubt, I took her by the hand, led her back to the boat, landed on the Stambul side, and set off, still leading her, my object being to find some sort of possible edifice nearby, not hopelessly burnt, in which to leave her. For in all Galata there was plainly none, and Pera, I thought, was too far to walk to. But it would have been better if I had gone to Pera, for we had to walk quite three miles from Seraglio Point, all along the city battlements to the Seven Towers, she picking her barefooted way after me, through the great Sahara of charred stuff. And night now well arrived, and the moon adrift in the heaven, making the desolate lonesomeness of the ruins tenfold desolate, so that my heart smote me then with bitterness and remorse, and I had a vision of myself that night, which I will not put down on paper. At last, however, pretty late in the evening, I spied a large mansion with green latticework facade and chacnisier and terrace roof, which had been hidden from me by the arcades of a bazaar, a vast open space at about the centre of Stamboul, one of the largest of the bazaars, I should think, in the middle of which stood the mansion, probably the home of Pasha or Vizier, for it had a very distinguished look in that place. It seemed very little hurt, though the vegetation that had apparently choked the great open space was singed through a black fluff among which lay thousands of calcined bones of man, horse, ass, and camel, for all was distinct in the bright, yet so pensive and forlorn moonlight, which was that eastern moonlight of pure astral mystery which illumines Persepolis and Babylon and ruined cities of the old Anakim. The house I knew would contain divans, yatags, cushions, foods, wines, sherbets, henna, saffron, mastic, raki, hashish, costumes, and a hundred luxuries still good. There was an outer wall, but the foliage over it had been singed away, and the gate all charred. It gave way at a push from my palm. The girl was close behind me. I next threw open a little green lattice door in the façade under the chacnisia, and entered. Here it was dark, and the moment that she too was within, I slipped out quickly, slammed the door in her face, and hooked it upon her by a little hook over the latch. I now walked some yards beyond the court, then stopped, listening for her expected cry, but all was still. Five minutes, ten, I waited, but no sound. I then continued my morose and melancholy way, hollow with hunger, 
intending to start that night for Imbros. By this time I had hardly advanced twenty steps when I heard a frail and strangled cry apparently in mid-air behind me, and, glancing, saw the creature lying at the gateway, a white thing in black stubble ashes. She had evidently jumped well outward from the small casement of lattice on a level with a little Shagnissier grating, through which once peeped bright eyes thirty feet aloft. I hardly believed that she was conscious of any danger in jumping, for all the laws of life are new to her, and having sought and found the opening, she may have merely come with blind instinctiveness after me, taking the first way open to her. I walked back, pulled at her arm, and found that she could not stand. Her face was screwed with silent pain. She did not moan. Her left foot, I could see, was bleeding, and by the wounded ankle I took her, and dragged her so, through the ashes across the narrow court, and tossed her like a little dog, with all my force within the door, cursing her. Now I would not go back the long way to the ship, but struck a match, and went lighting up girandoles, cressets, candelabra, into a confusion of light, among great numbers of pale-tinted pillars, rose and azure, with verd antique, olive, and portoro marble, and serpentine. The mansion was large, I having to traverse quite a desert of embroidered brocade hangings, slender columns, and brusa silk, till I saw a staircase doorway behind a Smyrna portiere, went up and wandered some time in a house of gilt-barred windows, with very little furniture, but palatial spaces, solitary huge pieces of faience, of inestimable age, and arms, my footfalls quite stifled in the Persian carpeting. I passed through a covered-in hanging gallery, with one window grating overlooking an inner court, and by this entered the harem, which declared itself by a greater luxury, bric-a-brackery, and profusion of manner. Here, descending a short curved stair behind a portiere, I came into a marble-paved sort of larder, in which was an old negress in blue dress, her hair still adhering, and an infinite supply of sweetmeats, French preserved foods, sherbets, wines, and so on. I put a number of things into a pannier, went up again, found some of those exquisite pale cigarettes, which, drunken in the hollow of an emerald, also a jewelled two-yard-long chibouk and tembaki, and with all descended by another stair, and laid them on the steps of a little raised kiosk of green marble in a corner of the court, went up again and brought down a still snowy yatag to sleep on, and there, by the kiosk step, ate and passed the night, smoking for several hours in a state of languor. In the centre of the court is a square marble well, looking white through a rankness of wild vine, acacias in flower, weeds, jasmine, and roses which overgrew it, as well as the kiosk and the whole court, climbing even the four-square arcade of Moorish arches, round the open space, under one of which I had deposited a long lantern of crimson silk, for here no breath of the fire had come. About two in the morning I fell to sleep, a deeper piece of shadow, now reigning where so long the melancholy silver of the moon had lingered. End of section 22